just two weeks ago now, a curious volume made its way from the library of Elder Uselding into the hands of the Stoys and from the Stoys into my hands. I've um, included the bibliographical reference. It's a volume that I think probably it, uh, if you have a season for it, you might very well enjoy as well as find interesting. It is a, um, a work of medium length by a scholar. His name is Scholes. It's called The Puritans and Music in England and New England. Scholes is not a Puritan and doesn't consider himself to hold their position. His main purpose in writing is to clear up what he considers to be a very significant historical mistake. So again, he's not writing because he's of a Puritan or Presbyterian mold, but rather he thinks that, and he is an Englishman, but he thinks that his fathers in England have been very wronged in the way that they have been portrayed in the literature. The common caricature of the Puritan is that he is opposed to art. I don't think it would go too far to say that the common caricature is that they're opposed to any sort of happiness or joy. Um, commonly, you will see them dressed all in black, wearing very dour expressions. And it's thought that the Puritans disapproved of the arts as perhaps worthless at best and devilish at their worst, painting sculpture, drama, and so on. For our purposes, of course, we're interested in their attitudes toward music and dancing. And what we find is that, uh, far from the common caricature, they did not disapprove of music, and not even dancing, and not even necessarily what they called mixed dancing, that would be men and women together. But the common uh, way that they are portrayed in the literature, even if I might say so scholarly literature, is that they disapproved of all music except for the singing of psalms in worship. Uh, and then they're commonly portrayed as um, uh, singing it in the mo most dry and dull way uh, imaginable. Scholes presents a very lengthy historical demonstration. To tell you the truth, he probably could have made his point in the third of the space. All of it's very interesting, but uh, before you get a third of the way through each chapter, you find that he's already made his point, and he's made a significant uh, and sufficient demonstration that the Puritans are not what they have been portrayed to be. The Puritan position, if I were to summarize it, concerning music and dance boils down to this, that in and of itself, both music and dance were indifferent. Remember our three category system of Christian ethics. Things can either be commanded, forbidden, or in and of themselves indifferent. Interestingly enough, you study the Puritans very carefully and you will see that they will consider music and dancing not only a lawful recreation, 
but a very pleasant and profitable one if rightly done. But of course, they do offer some cautions. Probably their one primary concern was for the seventh commandment and issues pertaining to chastity, which have historically always been a difficulty with both music and dancing. They're very aware of this. But of course, in the content of the song and dance, there ought not to be any violation of any of the Ten Commandments. And they were also very sensitive to what I would call economic issues with respect to these recreations. By that I mean, since we have a limited amount of time, money, and other resources, how much time, money, and other resources ought to go into uh, these things. So they're sensitive to these issues. But, again, these things are lawful in and of themselves and very uh, pleasant if rightly done. Scholz also does a pretty effective job demonstrating that although there might have been a few radicals among the Puritans in, um, in their attitudes with respect to these things, you don't find any more radicals among them than you would say of, among the Anglicans of the period. Or the Quakers, who are much more radical in their views on these things than the Puritans were. As a matter of fact, the Quakers accused the Puritans of being libertines in this, on this issue. They didn't believe in any song or any dance pretty much at all. Not even, uh, not even worship song as far as uh, the normal and old doctrine of the Quakers. Most of the Puritans approved of music and dance. Some of them, you might think of Cromwell, was a great patron of the art of music, a great lover of music. And there's many things that you might say about Cromwell, but he was not what we would consider loose in his morals. Uh, he was of the strict Puritan variety, as was his son Richard Cromwell, who was also a great patron of uh, music and even dance. We find the Puritan position summarized in Larger Catechism 139. I do believe I, I included an extract. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, stage plays, and so on. I want you to notice the adjective lascivious. That little adjective there is meant to apply to the entire series. Otherwise, the series doesn't make any sense because I don't think anyone would want to say that the Puritans thought that books in and of themselves were a violation of the Seventh Commandment, which would be ridiculous. And this is a very good uh, summary of the mainstream of thought that these things were lawful in and of themselves unless they became lascivious. And interestingly enough, as you peruse the literature, why is it that the Puritans were comf comfortable with music and dance in spite of some of the dangers that have historically been attached to these arts and disciplines? Well, they say that the saints of God used these things in the scriptures. 
And so we dare not call unlawful what the scriptures have treated as lawful. Why is this important? Turn with me in your Bible to the Paul's epistle to Titus chapter 1. You have heard this from me before. I hope to make a deeper impression with it now by God's grace. We have a responsibility from the Most High, from the lawgiver, to maintain the system of ethics exactly as it comes from his hand. That means we treat commandments as commandments, prohibitions as prohibitions, and things indifferent as things indifferent. And as as faithful to the lawgiver, we try to maintain it exactly like that as far as the Lord gives light. And now we are struck with something of the spiritual importance of this. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Just a little bit of context. Paul is writing to Titus, who is serving as evangelist on the Isle of Crete. Paul has moved through Crete, preaching the gospel. People have been converted, and churches have begun to gather. He leaves Titus behind him to set in order things that are yet uh, wanting, things that have not yet been done. And first and foremost, he tells Titus that he's to make sure that officers are ordained in the churches. And then he tells immediately why this is so very important given the context. They have some very hard work in front of them. There are already false teachers in the midst of the Cretan Christians and faithful office bearers are going to have to engage these false teachers for the protection of the flock. So Paul first gives Titus instruction about these office bearers and how they are to engage these false teachers. And then he gives some instruction about how to treat the Cretan Christians themselves. Verse 12. One of themselves... Even a prophet of their own said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Uh, here, Paul cites a pagan poet, uh, a Cretan poet, one of their own, who gives something of uh, a catalog of their, nat- their national tendencies and sins. It's not very flattering. They are... Liars, and they are uh, very much committed to their own bellies. And Paul, having been among the Cretans, is able to say, this witness is true. This is part of their uh, national sins. So then he gives some practical counsel. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Notice here, first you get a practical charge, rebuke them sharply, and then the reason that they may be sound in the faith. This is a very difficult thing to do, and to do well. Paul does not want the Christians rebuked sharply so that they might uh, be wounded or injured in any sort of way, not to hurt them, nor to hurt their feelings, but so that they might be sound in the faith. And being a particularly 
thick-skinned group of people, as the description seems to intimate, they need a sharp rebuke to penetrate the hide so that they might be corrected. But notice it here, so, it's, so that they might be sound, so that they might be healthy in the faith. And then he goes on to define a little more precisely what health in the faith means. Two things. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. You know that the Jews, and it appears that among the Cretans there was a Judaizing variety of teaching. The Jews loved to uh, multiply fables concerning uh, how to interpret the Bible and fill in the um, gaps. It's called halakhic material. They have much of it, a lot of it uh, forever inscribed in their, in their Talmud. But uh, they're even more famous among Gentiles for their multiplication of what we would call merely human commandments. They could never be satisfied with the commandments as they came in the word of God. They would read something like, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And being uh, unsatisfied that this was specific enough, they would begin to multiply legislation. So what does it mean to put off working for the day? Well, we can't can't carry something of a certain weight and we can't travel more than a certain distance and so on. They love to multiply commandments. Paul says that if we are to be sound in the faith, we are not to give heed. That means we're not to listen or pay attention to the commandments of mere men. And the men further described here as turning from the truth. This was a temptation for the Jews We see this in the New Testament with the Pharisees who love to multiply commandments. And if I might bring it a little closer to home, this is a temptation um, for the sort of mind that is attracted to our kinds of Reformed churches. I don't know about you. I'll tell you something about myself. If you haven't already picked up on it, you should... You should probably know. I have a tendency always to gravitate towards the most radical or extreme position. I'm like that by disposition and by way of habit of mind. And so when it comes to ethics, there's a certain tendency in me to think that the most conservative thing, the strictest thing, is best, is safest. But the reality is, and I probably think about this text of scripture most every day because of this tendency. The reality is maintaining God's system exactly as it is, is best. That's the reality. Not looseness, nor strictness, but exactly as it has come from the hand of God. We call it a canon or a standard. And that standard is that to which we um, seek to approach. To say this in another way, you know in Paul's writings he makes, he contrasts what he calls the stronger and the weaker brother. The stronger brother uh, maintains the system of ethics as it is. He knows when an indifferent thing is an indifferent thing and he feels free in the use of it. All other things being equal. 
The weaker brother, uh, on the other hand, is contracted in his conscience. He either takes a lawful and indifferent thing as being unlawful, or he's not sure about it, so he stays away from it. Little flock in the scriptures, the stronger brother is the ideal position. Not that of the weaker brother. But if your habit of mind is like mine, I tend to the faults of the weaker brother. I tend to be uh, contracted in my conscience. I tend to be uh, uh, worrisome about these, about these sorts of things. But the stronger brother is the ideal. And as we see here in Paul, if we want to be sound and healthy in the faith, the closer we can come to maintaining the system of ethics exactly as it came from the hands of God, the better off we will be. How important is it for you to be sound and healthy in the faith? That's the importance of this. The Puritan position with respect to music and dance was that it fit in that category of indifferent things in the scripture. And so they said, since the scripture treats it in this way, so will we. And now the question becomes very much, are they right? Let me just take you briefly what we have seen so far about uh, music and even dance sometimes outside of the context of worship. So here we're not talking about um, worship songs. We're talking about music outside of the context of uh, worship. And what have we seen so far? Now I hope we're starting to get some of the payoff from all of the work that we have done. Genesis chapter 4, we saw Jubal. We saw that music was part of a general cultural development coupled with uh, Shepherding and husbandry, as well as metallurgy, all things that are lawful parts of the cultural development. In Genesis chapter 31, we saw Laban's speech concerning Jacob. You'll remember it. He said, Jacob, why did you find it necessary to run away? If you had told me you wanted to leave, I would have sent you off with music and dancing. This speech only makes sense if Laban, at least, thinks that Jacob would think of this as being a good thing. That speech only works in that context, and they had been so long together by this point, it's almost impossible to think that Laban was mistaken in his opinion concerning Jacob's views. As a matter of fact, he had participated in two marriages with Jacob and witnessed his behavior in that sort of a context. In, uh, well, so we see there that it appears that Jacob, that holy patriarch of ancient time, approved of music in festivities, thought of it as being a good, sweet, and pleasant thing. We saw a little bit of religious music outside of the context of worship in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This was uh, Moses' last song. We find that it's not a worship song, but rather it is a doctrinal and prophetic song, even a monument song, so that when they ended up in the Babylonian exile, they would know why, they would remember why. And we said that uh, outside of the context of worship, outside of the context of the second commandment, the third commandment must always govern all other kinds of uh, religious music. 
is God being treated as weighty and glorious? Are divine things being treated as weighty and serious? And finally, uh, last week we saw the dancing girls of Shiloh in Judges chapter 21, where they dance as part of their rejoicing, apparently both in the harvest as well as in the, uh, the general context of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Not as part of the tabernacle and its worship, mind you, but part of their general uh, festivities. I think in some, if we are honest with ourselves, the picture is favorable, is it not? Concerning the way that music is treated outside of the context of worship. I wanted to uh, advance our meditations in this vein concerning song outside of worship, and even draw them to conclusion. And finding the need to economize our consideration somewhat, and I do think we can bring this aspect, song outside of worship, to a conclusion this morning, having all we really need from the Bible. There's much more that can be said. You could go to the book of Job and other places. Uh, but if we take that method, we'll never finish. The, the evidence is becoming so much larger so we'll just take just a few other things from this period of time, from the time of the judges to the time of David, to show how music was being used outside of worship and apparently with great approval. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 11, beginning with verse 30. Judges chapter 11 verse 30 and Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering so Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote from Aroer, even till thou comest to Minneth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards with a great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah, Unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. And thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord. And I cannot go back. The year is roughly 1143 B.C. So we are about 150 years after the time of Deborah. About 200 years until the time of David. The circumstances of Jephthah's deliverance was uh, an Amorite 
revival of power. The Ammonites, you will remember, were the descendants of Lot. They lived on the other side of Jordan, outside of Israelite territories. Jephthah had made a vow that if God would give him victory over the Ammonites, that he would offer the burnt offering of whatever came out of his door first. The book of Judges is a a fascinating study on the right use and the abuse of religious vows. Jephthah makes a foolish vow because he vows he knows not what. And this gets him uh, into trouble. Notice for our purposes, verse 34. And Jephthah came to, came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. That's the same language, uh, timbrels, tof, uh, that was used at Miriam and the, the women in Exodus chapter 15. This would be the, the tambourine-like drums, the tambourines without the jingles or the little symbols. And we're still left with the, with the um, problem. Is this with dances or with pipings? We'll still leave that undecided at the time. Interestingly enough, in the, in the plural, timbrels and dances, it does sound as if um, Jephthah's daughter came out at the head, but probably not alone. It appears that other women uh, were following her out as she went out to express her joy and to honor her father, who was coming back from his victory. This would be a very natural expression of joy in as much as her father and the nation has been delivered from a great threat. We should say that the marks both for uh, Jephthah and his daughter, Jephthah's a bit more mixed, but at at the end of the day, when you do a full study of Jephthah, I think we're forced to conclude that he was a man well acquainted with the scriptures. And his daughter seems to be uh, recognized here as quite a pious young lady. And so the dance and the tambourine are used and approved by Jephthah's pious daughter, and no doubt by her father. It's hard to imagine that she was mistaken about her father's sentiments. If you want some example of Jephthah's ability in the scriptures, uh, scan the, the surrounding context for his argumentation with the Ammonites over the land. You'll find him very well versed in scriptural history in that, uh, in that argument. But I, I go on. There's many things that are interesting here. What, what actually happened to Jephthah's daughter? I would say in our day, most take it to be that she was actually burned or something like that. On balance, I think ultimately she was perpetually consecrated to the service of the tabernacle and its and its menial labor. Uh, but we'll set that to the side for the present. After all, she ends up lamenting her virginity and not the loss of her life. And her father, showing some uh, abilities in the scripture, would have to know that uh, when the uh, firstborn were given up for sacrifice, it wasn't for their death, but for a perpetual consecration unto the Lord, which appears to be what happens here. I digress. We move on. I want you to notice how similar this is to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, 
took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. We find the daughters uh, of Shiloh dancing. It seems to have been both a common and, I think we should even be able to say, natural and understandable expression of joy in certain circumstances. But we go on and we can see yet another almost identical example of it uh, nearly 200 years later. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Here we have David's admirers, beginning in verse 6. You remember the context. David is beginning to distinguish himself as a mighty general in Israel's army. David's admirers end up getting him into quite a bit of trouble. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. What we're finding is that we have a, um, a remarkably durable practice among the Israelites. Our Historical considerations already span 500 years, and it's the same thing. These women come out with their drums and with dances or uh, piping. Remember, this is, uh, I say that this gets David into trouble because it's these admirers that provoke Saul's jealousy. David is being thought of more highly and is being uh, spoken of more highly than Saul in their song. But this, uh, for our purposes, this, um, these drums and this dancing has been from Miriam in 1450 down to the time of David, probably 950 or so. A remarkably bit of, uh, remarkably stable bit of practice. Just uh, some brief notes on their method of celebration here. Singing and dancing, once again, dancing or piping, it's hard to say. They have the tabrets or those little tambourines. They do this with joy. I want you to mark that. With joy. King James Bible says with instruments of music. The, the Hebrew is shalish. Uh, it's related, related to the Hebrew root for three. And this has led to speculation on about every imaginable kind of musical instrument that you can imagine. It seems to me that the King James translator said decided to sidestep the issue, instruments of music. But some have said perhaps it was some sort of three-sided percussion device, maybe like a triangle. Others have proposed perhaps a three-stringed lute. Others have said perhaps some sort of a dance in three parts. Nobody knows. This is the only uh, reference we have to it, and the uh, Bible appears to be lost in the, in the midst of time. 
And once again, it appears that they, uh, that they sing antiphonally. The women answered one another as they played. Uh, I want you to note, and this becomes very important as our own thoughts develop, note the emphasis upon joy. That this was natural and we're starting to see a very common expression of their joy at the good things that have uh, come to pass on their behalf. I wanted to look at just one other uh, example. Turn back to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. You might wonder why bring this up. I've been talking about these expressions of joy. Here we have the medicinal use of David's harp in bringing comfort to King Saul. But these are very much related when we learn something about the use, a good use of uh, music. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 16. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand. And thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, that is, a, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto, unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me. For he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass that when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took in heart and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. We learn here that David, who uh, by all accounts had been a very pious shepherd boy, was also skilled in music. Apparently when he was in the fields, he had learned great skill on the harp. This is very suggestive all by itself of Israelite life, that even a shepherd boy had learned music, that he had learned an instrument quite well. When you couple this with the many notices we've already had of uh, the rejoicing of women and their abilities on musical instruments, it shows you that this was a, uh, a culture that was very alive with music and developing in the musical arts. Here we have a therapeutic use of music. It's hard for us to say exactly the full extent of Saul's problems. Did they have a physical aspect? Probably. Did they have a spiritual aspect? Certainly. The text highlights this. 
But we can say that his mind and his emotions had become disarranged during these uh, seasons. And David's music was soothing to him, helped him to rearrange the disorder of his mind and his affections. I think most people who have ever been uh, troubled in mind, everything from the minor things, young people with a lost love to um, the uh, grieving of a death of a loved one or something like that has found this sort of solace and comfort in music. But for our purposes right now, notice that music was studied, used, and approved by David even outside of worship. And there's no sign that he ever repented of his general disposition towards music his whole life long, but rather... Uh, continued to advance his interest even uh, when he entered into public life and the many responsibilities of the kingship. From all of this, I wanted to draw some doctrinal conclusions. This is the way that the uh, Puritans um, vindicated their own position on music and dance. That when you study the Church of God in ancient times, those holy men of old, they used both music and dance, and there's not the slightest indication in the Bible of any sort of disapproval. And so they say that the, uh, these disciplines are in and of themselves indifferent. And they would even say, when rightly used, very pleasant recreations, very refreshing to both mind and body. But again, uh, and I've not done this yet. We'll see enough of this as we go forward. Their concerns about the Seventh Commandment and the economic issues will also be vindicated. When we get into the prophets, we will see some criticism of Israel as they become, as they sort of luxuriate and abuse the many good things that God has given them. Everything from their food and wine and furniture to their music. We will find that the uh, prophets criticizing them on economic issues. But once again, we find the uh, Puritans to be uh, thoroughly biblical in the way that they think on these things. Neither um, uh, overly loose nor overly severe, but rather the scriptural means. It's very interesting to read this man, Scholes. He said, after all of the um, uh, lampooning that the Puritans have suffered, when you really study their position, it makes evident good sense. Evident good sense. A couple of practical reflections on the nature of music, and now we're trying to gather all of these things up. Music is uh, designed to express thoughts when vocal, in other words, when it has a lyrical component to it, it expresses thoughts. But always it is used to express emotions as well as to stir and heighten the affections. And this leads us onto two very different kinds of use. One poor and one good. Most of you that come out of evangelical backgrounds will be well familiar with this poor usage. When we have music that stirs Emotions about nothing or about unworthy things, this is certainly a poor use of music. It is 
indeed a very stirring sort of thing, but if our affections are going to be stirred, then they ought to be stirred by things that are worthy of them. And uh, I, I think highlighting the poor use is done best by contrasting it with the good use, which is we use music rightly and well when we use it to stir our affections and to rouse us about things that are worthy of our affections. In this day and age, there, uh, in reform circles, there's a heavy emphasis upon the intellect, and that's good. There's something of a, of a reaction against the anti-intellectualism of our age, against the, uh, you might say, the emotionalism. You can even talk to other Christian people and say, well, you know, why do you do such and such? Well, you know, it feels right. Or you get these sort of vague and nebulous answers that are ultimately... Uh, grounded in their affections. It's a strange sort of answer when you think about it and analyze it because ultimately it reduces to something like, well, why did you do what you did? Because I like it. Which is certainly a sound Christian Mm -hmm. ethic, but a very dangerous one. Uh, so the Reformed are pulling back the other direction, and you can see some of this in uh, the academic feel of a lot of the Reformed churches. I do think we are living in an age where, uh, having felt the full brunt of the, um, of the what you might call the intellectual reaction against the anti-intellectualism, Reformed thinking is starting to come back more into a balance and with the publication efforts of, say, Dr. Joel Beakey, there's a very heavy emphasis upon uh, the affections once again and piety. But remember, rightly, the primacy always belongs to the intellect. The intellect has an object in view, and then the Bible commands us to feel properly about that object. But first, the intellect is prime. Not that ultimately it's more important, but it's first in order. You must have first an object. The mind must know that it's worthy of the affections, and then the affections are to uh, follow. Music is useful in that it helps us stir up our affections for those things that are worthy of them. You think about um, its use in worship in this regard. Consider Exodus chapter 15 and passing through the Red Sea. No doubt all of the Israelites standing on the shore that day were absolutely astounded by what just happened. But would we be going too far if we said that it was absolutely impossible for them to feel too deeply about what just happened? Is it possible for them to feel too deeply about the God and the Christ who had just delivered them in this miraculous manner? So no doubt as dumbstruck as they were standing there on the bank of the Red Sea to have something to stir them up to even greater affections, even greater wonder was altogether fitting. And this is a good use of music. I won't uh, come off for uh, long here, but doesn't this give us some hint concerning the right use of our own service of song? It is meant to stir up our affections. Here I want you to return to that little clause with joy. They came out with joy and they were stirring themselves up to even greater joy. 
this is not just an Old Testament idea, but this is uh, something you find in the New Testament as well. As sober as the Apostle James is, as strict a moralist as he is, what does he say about, is any Mary? Let him sing a psalm. James chapter 5. It's an expression of merriment and it also stirs us up to greater merriment. If I might just give one practical hint about our performance of song, both the tune and the pacing of the psalm ought to serve to this stirring. So in other words, we ought never to uh, leave ourselves open to this sort of um, these sorts of accusations that they sang all people that on earth do dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice with somber tones but rather when we talk about singing with a cheerful voice both the tune and the manner of the performance ought to be cheerful and to stir us up to greater cheerfulness. In other words, um, I don't think we can think too much or too deeply about these things, frankly. Why did God give us a service of prayer to express ourselves as well as a service of song? And the service of song is not a simple uh, reduplication of the service of prayer, but with notes but rather it actually performs a separate function. Part of it is the same. We're still expressing ourselves to God, but the music itself is meant to stir us up. Our God is worthy of our affections. I wish in this day and age of reformed intellectualism that uh, everyone would go away and read Jonathan's treatise on, uh, Jonathan Edwards' treatise on the religious affections. He observes, if God is not unwisely, constituted and formed us with affections, then certainly they ought to be exercised about those things that are most worthy of them. And what could be more worthy of our affections, our love, our zeal, our pious longing, our hope, than the great God as he is portrayed in Scripture. And Jesus Christ in his glorious gospel, if there's anything in heaven on the earth that is worthy to stir our affections, it's certainly these things. And we have been given an ordinance to help us, to stir us up and to rouse us up so that we might feel about these things as we ought. Because when our feelings about these things are shallow, pale, and paltry, that's a sign of a bad heart. We ought to feel deeply about these things. And the service of song is meant to help us. Outside of uh, worship, these things are meant to stir us up to uh, appropriate feelings concerning whatever is before us. If God has uh, blessed us with the harvest, uh, we ought to rouse ourselves to think of this not just as being some small thing that's happened, but it's a great blessing. Sunshine and rain have been provided in those proper and delicate proportions to feed us once again. And so to stir ourselves up and to make merry and to recognize the greatness of the blessing and to feel it deeply is an altogether appropriate thing. When there are great sins in the land or... Uh, 
great calamities, when there are personal losses, we frequently will make use of music to stir ourselves and to express ourselves. And these are good uses of music. I know that some of this discussion of the affections can make us uh, uncomfortable, but we need to recapture our comfort. The, um, the Puritans were probably the most um, uh, academically well-trained people that the, the world has ever seen. And yet when you, when you read their preaching and their books on piety, they were also um, uh, people of deep uh, affections. And uh, we ought to follow their pious example, their worthy example in this way. Because after all, this is in the trajectory of David, who composed our Psalter. Aren't you frequently struck by David's depth of emotion about everything that he experiences in life? He's called a man after God's own heart. And when God took to himself human flesh, do we not find a, a God-man full of affections, weeping at the grave of a, of a friend, being indignant at the rejection of children and so forth, we find a Jesus full of affections. He is our great model and our exemplar. And let us follow in his steps. Let us pray together.